Prince Remembered from The Current. We're here with Bobby Z, drummer from The Revolution, and we're talking today about the album 1999. This had to be just an amazing time to be a part of The Revolution. It was uh, definitely a pivotal moment. Um, the, the key to that story is it starts here in, in the Twin Cities at the Armory when the video for 1999, Little Red Corvette, Let's Pretend We're Married, and Automatic were all shot in a, it's a blur now, but probably a two or three day sequence. Um, that really set up the album. It was heavy makeup. If you remember that video, it was really, the 80s were in full bloom on that album. Now that was the record, the first record where it started to become billed as the revolution, right? Right. He was, um, he was testing the name on the back of the album. He, he did it, that illustration himself, and he put that backwards in there, like a puzzle. But everything with Prince was a puzzle. The songs are puzzles when you play them. You know, they sound very repetitive, and, you know, I mean, they are. But he had the ability to put something different in every bar. And it makes it challenging as you study these and play these continuously you know it, it was um it was very meticulous theory and 1999 he really figured it out he figured out who his audience was i'm going to take the stones audience and i'm going to take this rick james audience and all this stuff i learned over there and i'm going to make one big my audience and he did it with corvette for the rock people 1999 for party people, you know, the, the, the band was an uneasy situation. You know, it, it wasn't settled by any means, as we know, the story changed going into Purple Rain. But um, you got to remember where it came from, which was Dirty Mind. Um, and then this audience finding mission of Dirty Mind. If you stuck with him during Dirty Mind, you knew Print. Dirty Mind was his personal exercise in, in really experimentation to the fullest. Very interesting story about 1999, the song. We were traveling at the tail end of, of, uh, of the Dirty Mind album, and um, there was a hotel sign, and it said, free HBO. That was a big deal. So everybody got to their room, turned on HBO, and there was a HBO documentary about Nostradamus and the prediction of the end of the world, 1999, 1999. And we're all blown away by this thing. You could feel it in the hotel rooms. They were just glued to the TV. So, of course, like normal people do, the, the next day, the water cooler talk is, did you see? And for Prince, he had written this song. So there explains the difference between mere mortals and Prince. So we're all going, wow. And then he just embodied the whole thing with 1999 the next day. That record's also got um, one of my favorite tracks. It's got some long tracks on that record, which maybe was afforded that opportunity because it stretched into a double album, uh, the first double or album of his career. he just decided not to edit those songs. So most songs we did, Computer Blue, 
20 minutes. I mean, everything was, was you know, always a suite. They had passages and things, and then eventually he could just cut it down. He was an amazing editor, too. But uh, the, the songs themselves could take on many minutes and many bars of, of different stuff. And it, again, it was a puzzle and you could just, he could take out a piece of the puzzle and still be a complete thought for the rest of us, but it was a puzzle nonetheless. So something like dance music, sex romance, was that, that wasn't like a vamping jam. That was a well thought out section by section kind well, of performance? I mean, for him, I mean, a well thought out section by section is a vamping jam live in the studio for Prince. So it's well thought out. You just don't know when or where, but it's it's coming at you, and it's just real time, you know, jam. And he'll just jam on a thing for twenty minutes, and it's all amazing. And whatever instrument you add or he adds or whatever you add, it's you're just all caught up in the song, and all of a sudden there's a twenty minute amazing jam that that you edit down to a three minute hit, plus the plus the long version on the album. Mm -hmm. What was the, uh, do you know what the decision was behind making 1999 into a double record? He was beginning to fight the, the editing of the, of the, of the majors, of, of mass marketing. You know, he was always, why can't I? And we know later in life, you know, he put out albums all the time. And he would refer to like the 30s and when people put out a record a month or Every year or every six months, James Brown. Every six months, and, you know, he 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 liked those models. He was prof, you know proficient enough to keep up with those models. And with MTV and everything, got slowed down. You know, the the whole process of of touring, and plus you add Purple Rain to that, and his whole process got slowed down. And you could tell he was impatient. And we all know he was impatient. So. Um, in this case, it was a double album. Um, I'm sure that the guys at Warner Brothers heard it and just went, these are all great songs. You know, he was just, so they went for it. But it was risky, yeah. Another track on that record is um, All the Critics Love You in New York. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us uh, anything, what you think is going on in that song? Dirty Bind was received in in positive and negative ways depending on where you sat with you know the musical talent or the risque look the musical talent um, people in new york loved it and the critics loved it and we played the ritz and it was monumental and you know but new york's an island in some ways so he was appreciative i think of what came out of New York, um, which I think led to Jagger and led the Stones thing. And, you know, uh, everybody was at that show in New York. I mean, I think, you know, like Warhol and Bowie and the Kiss guys were there back then. It was, you know, big time stuff, an up and comer was pulling the stars in, and uh, that happened there. So it was an explosion, definitely. Saturday Night Live, we did Party Up. There was, there was a, a movement there for him, and he, he liked it. What was that like for you, being, being in, that, uh, in the eye of that hurricane in, in a little bit? And, and were, there, were there moments when you were sort of like 
awestruck or starstruck as well when you're when you're going to New York and you know Mick Jagger and David Bowie are showing up at the gigs. Uh, yes, um, it, and Prince was too. We, we I was very grateful. I had you know Dr. Fink with me, Matt from St. Louis Park. You know Prince Andre. You know we're from Minneapolis. We had each other in the face of these monumental characters in show business and. Um, it was comforting that we did, you know, did it together. Um, I was just very grateful to that the that the was starting to happen. It, it took a while for the thing to happen. I started like two years before the demo. It feels like, but it was probably right when the demo at Moonsong was recorded. People don't realize Purple Rain was the sixth album after all that time. That's a lot of life there in the beginning everybody has a beginning and he didn't win everybody over in the beginning for sure his music was doing that but he just he was bowling now he's bowling people over it it certainly changes everything about playing live when people are coming prepared you know the songs they're into it they're waiting for songs you know you can tell the anticipation for certain songs, you know, and how he constructed a set and how he was starting to play with the set list to leak new songs and future songs. So it definitely became an audience, you know, a real, real audience. And they couldn't get in everybody, you know, stuff like that. So it, it definitely changes the dynamic from where it was in the very beginning, for sure. Do you remember like what that meant at, at that time in that era uh, in the Twin Cities when you guys came home? How you were treated? Was it was there a sort of a uh, a different you know perspective at that point because you had left and came back as heroes or or, or, or didn't or you know? Yeah, or? It, it definitely felt good to come home. It always feels good to come home. Um, it did feel more and more and, and building up to not far from here at the St. Paul Civic Center, there's you know, seven shows for Purple Rain. I mean, it, that really felt like something special growing up here, coming from here. Um, but it was, like I said before, I mean, we were very proud. We were from Minneapolis. Prince was obviously a, a very Minnesota guy. You know, he came back here and built Paisley Park. You know, he didn't have to, but mm -hmm. he was in L.A. He was hanging out, but... And so we, there was a, there was definitely pride in what we were doing, accomplishing and coming back and sharing it with people. And that started to show up in the concerts. Again, not all of them in the beginning. This is where it started. You know, it took a while for the engine to choo-choo and chugga-chugga, but people definitely were appreciating Prince and it word was, was out. And that, that was, again, gratifying that it was being recognized here at home. Yeah. Delirious, um, we had always done kind of rockabilly stuff, whether it was Elvis or Blue Suede Shoes or, you know, sometimes we'd do like this rockabilly version of How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? I, mean, I love that song. And um, Delirious was, was, was kind of a, a fun play to that. Uh, he kept it short and sweet, and it, it it's... It's a it's a real favorite, you know. It's just really a fun, humorous play on words, Prince track. It's really classic Prince. 
You also hear a little bit of almost like the, the, the punk and new wave in that track, it seems like. Yeah, I think the sounds definitely the new wave synth sound. He's got that little lead line going in there, and that that definitely is is the '80s synth sound for sure. Now, is that the kind of track that was really band involved in the creation, or was that one that Prince sort of did all the music and then sort of brought it to you guys and you fleshed it out live? That, then that that's all Prince on the record. That song turned into. An epic. We, we, the revolution's been doing a version of what we did with Delirious now, and because it's, it's just, it's, uh, it turns into the B section of "Let's Go Crazy" from the twelve-inch. The do 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 do. It's got that part goes into it. So that that this is an original arrangement from that, and he would run around the stage on Delirious. I mean, he was really, it was one of those songs where sprinting and doing the, the there was a a bar he had, that fireman's pole, that, was, that he would just spin down and do all kinds of crazy stuff. It was a, a big event live, Delirious. Yeah. Um, how about Little Red Corvette? Corvette is, um, is a song that I, he called me over um, my Lake uh, Lake Riley house and uh, studio was in the basement, and um, and we put the messing around with this syndromes concussions to put the the toms do do those things, and um, he played me this the track before we did anything, and I was just like, wow, this is that chorus is as powerful as as you can get. So it, it it struck me right away as uh, as something different, and you know rock and roll it was really different. So this was one of the records where the um, the, the was this the first record where Prince had the Lindrums and those sort of pushed to the fore more, or that started on controversy the synthetic. The the first time stuff? you hear the Lind, the LM one is. Um, Private Joy, uh, Controversy. And then um, you really get the hang of it. He gets the hang of it. And I think all drummers at that point were a little scared of the thing. The whole drummer universe was in revolt mentally. But Prince's manager, Steve Farnoli, gave me some really good advice. He said, it's here, learn how to use it. And that was really good advice. So um, not only did I take his advice but it was part of the job we had interfaced the back of the lin which they were smart enough to put outputs for every one of these channels <clears throat> so don bats um our brilliant talented technical wizard back then created an interface with uh the only thing really available was acoustic guitar pickup you trigger the velocity of the device interfaced with the back of the lens through this kind of early Model T version of what was yet to come. Um, Prince was pushing the envelope as far as technology. And uh, all of a sudden there was playable versions of those sounds. And all of a sudden the, the show opened up to a new hybrid style of drumming with organic drums underneath. But it was definitely, I was the muse for something completely 
different in the drumming world that's never been seen before and put another credit to him, give another credit to him for pushing that. Then Roland and everybody started coming with the pads and the interfaces, but they still weren't playable Lin sounds. And even the LM2 was was not as good as the outputs on the LM1. So it created a whole different world until the 808 came along. And then, of course, that changed everything. As a drum machine goes, it became the, the meat and potatoes for years. I guess the only other uh, I know I know Kraftwerk was experimenting with um, creating their own triggering devices they for their were drums. An inspiration for everybody because that was really early. Thomas Dolby really early, but Kraftwerk. I mean, their whole I don't know what their first album was, what year, but mid seventies. Yeah, that was really early computer stuff, and we were paying attention to that how they were doing that. And that was very laborious, I'm sure, what they were doing. And we, you know, I remember seeing, vi you know, something of them live. I didn't get to see them live. But that, I'm sure, you know, Prince was definitely aware of craft work. And we were into it. So I'm, it all, little, like I said, little pieces of this and that, for sure. Well, yeah, that was the time when um, Africa Bombada was taken from craft work as well. So there was this communication going on where some of the early... Uh, hip-hop artists and New York-based artists were delving into the European. I mean, you can create your own beat, and, you know, I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, that's what the whole premise was, was, you know, taking a beat or a loop and, you know, creating a new entity out of it. But here, if you could program beats, you're a beat maker, you know, like Prince was and Dr. Mm -hmm. Dre is, you know, I mean, that's ultimately what these guys are. Is, you know, I, I certainly had my share of contributions, but the organic musicality and the rhythm that, you know, was just, you know, fluid out of them that you just let it kind of be, you know, it just kept coming. What was the most surprising thing about Prince's demeanor that we wouldn't know? The illusion that he's shy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he uh, definitely... If you knew him, he wasn't shy. If you didn't know him, he was shy. It was kind of a, a wall there that if you got on the other side of the wall, it was a completely different person. But he used that ability to, uh, to be himself by being cautious. I think when I replay his laugh in my head, it, it makes me smile. Um, it was... Something was truly funny, and making him laugh was was a thrill because he, when he laughed, he full in belly laugh, and um, his sense of humor was was you know I loved it. A lot of slapstick. Um, he loved physicality, humor, and um, sarcasm. I mean, he just he could play with all the words and the emotions and you were always just kind of not sure even the lyrics in in real life even when he was talking to you were, were parables what was the best part of having uh prince as your boss he was prince he was my friend and the guy i met before he was famous but it was him and that's the best part well, you've had a, a, God, 40 years. 
Yeah, I was 43, actually. And um, I often think of the private days. The earliest moments with him were uh, very telling of his talent for me. But we were still just kids and doing, seeing movies and going to shopping malls and wandering around, listening to music. Most of the time, listening to music. And then he got two boomboxes. He record a recording boombox over here. And then he would put a tape and put the tape in the other one. And then he would play that one. And then he would overdub. And he'd create these masterpieces in his apartment on 28th and DuPont, or maybe that's where Moonsound was, but it was in that area. And a lot of hiss, but he would have multi-tracks from bouncing cassette back and forth with a boombox. And I would just be fascinated with these pieces of work that he was doing. I just couldn't believe the meticulous singing and finding these notes and creating these operas. Um, So... It was astounding for me every day musically, and I just had no doubt that he would find his way. It's just everybody's got to find their way. And so his way was just his own way of manipulating an ancient business, show business, and his way of doing it. And it was just remarkable to witness. It's Bobby Z here at The Current.